Friends, let's turn our attention to the Lord in prayer as we prepare our minds and our hearts to hear from his word. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we pray now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your most holy word, that you would continue to accomplish your purposes through it by the power of the Spirit to change our hearts, to change our minds, to encourage us, to motivate us to action, and to bring you glory because of the change that you institute through the gospel of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the book of Galatians. Today we start a new sermon series that will last the next handful of months in the book of Galatians that is called True Gospel, True Freedom. And as you uh, learn more about this book of Galatians, you will hear why it's entitled that. Nobody wants to believe the wrong thing. Nobody sets out in their life and says to themselves, you know what, I'm going to figure out everything that's right and true and good, and I'm going to look at all of the evidence, and then, based on that evidence, I'm going to believe and act upon the exact opposite. <laughs> Nobody wants to believe the wrong thing. And sometimes when we believe the wrong things, the consequences really aren't that severe. If I say, I, I believe that the Cleveland Browns are looking really good this year, and they are not going to beat the Pittsburgh Steelers once, but they're actually going to beat them twice. But if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, it is of little consequence to me, or to you, or to the vast majority of other people. But sometimes, if you believe the wrong thing, it becomes a matter of life and death. A friend of mine named John experienced this. His mother was struggling with a very serious illness, and some friends took her to a faith healer at their church. And the man prayed over her that the Lord would heal her. And after praying over her, he proclaimed with some level of confidence, the Lord has healed you or will heal you. But if you go and seek medical attention, then that is a sign of your lack of faith. And that healing will not happen. And she believed the words of the man. And a few weeks went by and the woman continued to suffer. And her son prompted her to please go to the doctor. But she believed the words of the man. And some more weeks went by and she suffered all the more greatly and her friends begged her to seek medical treatment but she believed the words of the man. And after a number of months, eventually suffering terribly with cancer, John's mother died. 
Because sometimes believing the wrong thing has terrible consequences. Nobody wants to believe the wrong things, especially when it's about the most important things. And yet sometimes we see it happen, don't we? We ourselves are sometimes blinded in our beliefs, even about the most important things, aren't we? And with this reality in mind, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the churches of Galatia and to Christians today about believing the right things about the most important things. He wrote the letter so that we could believe the right things about God, about Jesus Christ, about the nature of our salvation, about how that salvation is attained. He did so because where there is true gospel, there's true freedom. Freedom for you and for me to enjoy God forever. He did so because by believing the wrong things, this can lead to terrible consequences. And so with that as a backdrop, let's read Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10 together. Please follow with me. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let it be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul begins the letter to the churches and to us with immediate concern and a particular tone. He is concerned because there are some who are quickly deserting Jesus. Look at verse 6 with me. Paul had been to the church of Galatia. He had preached the gospel to those people. And multiple churches have been formed. And belief in Jesus Christ was evident. Many had put their faith in him. But now, after just a short time, some had deserted. And so he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. A few observations. 
Notice the anguish in his tone here. This is not a brief commentary about the happenings of life. This is not merely some people who change their mind about something. Like, I don't like my house anymore, so I'm going to go buy a new house. Or I don't like my car anymore, so I'm going to go buy a new car. I'm going to make a couple changes around here. It's not that type of tone. This is the tone of great distress. Because when someone you know, when someone you've invested in, when someone you care about deeply, when someone like that deserts Jesus, this is not just a matter of opinion. It's not just a matter of perspective. It's not a matter of just taking a little different journey or course in life. This is a matter of life and death. <laughs> not a matter of temporary disagreement. This is a matter of eternal significance. And so the strong language is appropriate. He says in verse 6 that they are deserting him. And that word, the original language, doesn't mean simply leaving him. It means to change allegiances. To move from one side to the other. In the year 1780, a 39-year-old military officer was rising through the ranks of the American military. He had helped significantly during the Revolutionary War against the British, but in his mind, he was not rising fast enough. He played an important role in the Americans driving the British out of the seaport of Boston. He played an important role in the Battle of Saratoga. He had even gained the favor of the mighty General George Washington. And as time went on, he became salty because he wanted more. And in 1780, General Washington gave this officer a great honor by giving him a commission that was sought after by many. The officer was commissioned and given the command of the American fort at West Point, New York. But no sooner did the officer receive the command than did he try through his father-in-law and through back channels to surrender the fort to the British and to change sides in the war. The plot was foiled. The fort was saved. The Americans won the revolution. But the young officer escaped. And his name would go down in great infamy. His name was Benedict Arnold. And that name has been applied to traitors, deserters, and defectors ever since. Some of the Galatian Christians were quickly changing sides. Some of them didn't even know it. They were abandoning Jesus. They, like the Israelites who were at the base of the mountain just hours after Moses ascended to meet with God, quickly found themselves crafting a golden calf. 
deserting the God that had brought them there. They were pulling a Benedict Arnold. They were deserting, but not just a cause. They weren't just deserting a set of beliefs. They weren't simply deserting a nation. They were deserting a person. They were deserting the one who had called them in the grace of Christ. They were deserting God himself. And they didn't even know they were doing it. And as we'll see, they were doing so because of a seemingly small, but actually significant change in their beliefs. And we see that in verses 6 and 7. And it points us to the fact that different Gospels are false Gospels. Look at verse 6 again. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the Gospel, in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different Gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The different gospel that they were turning to was one that was put forward by a group of people called the Judaizers. The Judaizers were Jews who also accepted Jesus as the Messiah. The Judaizers were people who claimed that to be a true follower of Christ and a true son or daughter of God, that you needed to put your faith in Jesus and you needed to adopt Jewish customs, identity, and even practice part of the Jewish law. You need to become a Jew to become a Christian. <laughs> and the particular point of emphasis in this case was that they often taught that a person to be saved needed to believe in Jesus and be circumcised. The physical sign of Judaism. The Judaizers added to the gospel. And by adding to the gospel, they created a false gospel. And it's unclear if there was another group adding to the gospel as well. Perhaps there was, Paul says in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you another gospel, history is replete with examples of people who claim divine voices from heaven, messages from angels, dreams, or even promptings of the Holy Spirit that add to the gospel. And when... There's something added to the gospel. It becomes a false gospel. And according to Paul, this is a serious, serious concern. And so this begs the question, how can you determine what a false gospel is? How do we know? How can we recognize a false gospel? Well, the first part of that is you need to know what the one true gospel is, and we'll talk about that. But a false gospel is when someone adds or takes away from the one true gospel. And that one true gospel is salvation by the grace of God through faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. 
I want to say that again just so we're really clear. The false gospels add or take away from the one true gospel salvation by the grace of God alone, through faith alone in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. The Judaizers were saying that a person needed Jesus' forgiveness plus obedience to the law. This is a false gospel. And of course, it begs the question, what are some of the false gospels that we see today? Nobody wants to believe the wrong things about the gospel, but false gospels are everywhere. And purveyors of false gospels are everywhere. And false gospels all deliver us to death. So let's talk together just briefly about five false gospels that we see very prevalent in our society today. False gospel number one, the most common of them all, is the belief that it doesn't matter what you believe, specifically, as long as you're good and a loving person. The particulars of your belief aren't that important, as long as you're good and loving. I mean, after all, God is love, and he overlooks many of our transgressions, as long as we, too, display a level of his love to the people around us. This is the message of the culture around us that wants nothing to do with holiness or purity or justice or judgment. This is the squishiest of all the false gospels because it has no coherence or consistency through it. And of course, it's the easiest of all ways because who gets to decide if you're loving or not? <laughs> Here's the problem with this gospel. The message of this gospel diminishes the need for forgiveness of sins and therefore the need for Christ's sacrifice. And if Jesus himself comes with the purpose to be crucified, <laughs> this takes away from that true gospel. False gospel number two that we see prevalent in our society today is the health and wealth gospel. This is a message that says, if you trust Jesus, then your life will be better. If you trust Jesus, you'll be healthier. If you trust Jesus, you'll receive material and monetary gain. And this is one of the most dangerous false gospels because it appeals to our core desires for physical comfort and for material wealth. I mean, after all, everybody wants to be healthy and everybody wants to have more. It's the nature of our humanity. This gospel has many iterations to it throughout history. The most recent version of this gospel comes primarily through TV evangelists and through faith healers. The promise of health and wealth should you trust Jesus. The promise of health and wealth should you give a little more money. The promise of health and wealth. Because after all, God wants to bless you. And he owns everything, and his blessings are tangible and material and a part of your very real life. 
This is the gospel, the false gospel that spread, has spread through mass media rapidly over the last 30 years. It's moved from America and been exported to South America, to Africa, to the Middle East, to Asia. It is one of the blights on American Christianity because it preys on the poor for the sake of making a few rich. In fact, a friend of mine who is a pastor in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates has a multi-ethnic church with people from all over the world in it, and he says that he has to apply his sermon against this false gospel of health and wealth nearly every week because it is so pervasive in the minds of the people who attend his church. But this is a different gospel. This is a false gospel. Let's be clear, there are many, many benefits to following the Lord Jesus. There are many benefits for your life right now to following the Lord Jesus. But God never promises health. And he never promises material wealth. He may give those things, but they are not promised for all. Because he promises something infinitely greater. He promises a perfect eternity after this life. The problem with this gospel is that it adds to the promises of God in the true gospel. False gospel numbers three and four are opposite sides of the same coin. False gospel number three is the gospel of legalism. The gospel of legalism is similar to that of the Judaizers. It says that you must believe the sacrifice in the sacrifice of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, but it implies that that grace is not enough, that the cross is not enough. It says that you must believe and you must do something. And so you hear this expressed in all kinds of ways, and I think that if you thought about your own Christian experience, you've probably had it expressed to you, maybe it came in the form of the old saying, if you're a Christian that you can't drink, can't smoke, you can't chew, and you can't go with girls who do. <laughs> you can't listen to certain types of music, and if you do, you better not dance. You can't eat, eat certain types of food, and the list goes on and on. And many legalists have very pure motives. They want to please God. But the message becomes, if you act certain ways, you can't be saved. Now let's be clear. Some of those things that I mentioned would be unwise. Some of those things I mentioned would even be sinful. But acting a certain way won't save you. <laughs> Only faith in Jesus will. Now, this type of legalism also takes on a religious bent to it sometimes, a different type of religious bent to it. You'll hear religious components added. Certain Pentecostals might say that you need to believe in Jesus and speak in tongues to be saved. There are at least a few denominations in this area that would say you need to believe in Jesus and be baptized to be saved. 
The Judaizers would say, you need to believe in Jesus and be circumcised to be saved. And the problem with this false gospel of legalism, it says that God's grace isn't enough. That the work of Jesus on the cross is almost sufficient, but not fully sufficient. So we must add something to it. And in adding something to it, it's not a true gospel. False gospel number four is the opposite side to that coin. It is the gospel of licentiousness. Licentiousness simply means, is another word for immorality or extravagance. A licentious person is extravagant in their fulfilling their own desires, even if they're sinful. And so this false gospel states that you can come to Jesus as you are, which is true. He welcomes all of you, regardless of what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter the weight of sin that's upon your shoulder, no matter the stain on your conscience. But this false gospel says, you can stay the way that you are. You don't have to change. You can come in a sinner and continue to embrace that sin all the way to your dying days. And so people claim the banner of Jesus, but they look like the rest of the world. They embrace the views of the world rather than embracing the views of the kingdom. They continue to embrace sin as a regular pattern of their life. This gospel of licentiousness is the gospel that we often see coming out of Hollywood. But not just Hollywood. It's the gospel that we see often in our own neighborhoods. And so Paul speaks to this in Romans chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The problem with this false gospel is that it misrepresents the true nature of faith. And it takes away from the transformative power of Jesus' work. True faith has a desire to pursue holiness. Because true faith has implicitly intertwined with it a conviction of sin. True faith has a desire to make Jesus the Lord over your life. True faith is demonstrated in a changed life. Now this change isn't what saves you. Jesus alone saves you. But this change is one of the evidences that Jesus has and is continuing to save you. False gospel number five is a churchless gospel. This is also prevalent today as you see people with a picture of the Rocky Mountains and saying, I went to church today. Or my church is on the fishing boat. Or my church is in the quiet of my own living room. And this gospel says that your faith in Jesus is a completely individual thing. That you don't need the people of God, the church, to grow in Christ. It makes being part of a local church an optional add-on to your spiritual life. 
And the problem with this gospel is that it ignores the many, many verses throughout the New Testament that describe the Christian life in terms of a community of people. It ignores the nature of God's gathered people with a particular identity. It forgets the one and others that are so consistent throughout the New Testament. And those one another commands and encouragements are one Christian to another Christian. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Galatians chapter 6, use language to help us to see that the church is a family. The church is a family of God, the family of God. God says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord. 1 Timothy 3.15 refers to the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. 1 Corinthians 12.12 refers to the church as one body with many members, or many parts. And all of the members of the body, though many, are one body. And so it is with Christ. And so the list goes on and on. This is why we encourage commitment to the Lord and commitment to one another through church membership. To come alongside people and say, God, I want to grow, and I see that your divine plan is for us to grow in community with other people. And so I'm committing to you, and I'm going to commit to all these people around me to grow together in the Lord Jesus. That's what church membership is. And so we serve each other. We hear from each other. We go to growth groups together. We teach each other's children. We welcome each other into our homes. We need each other. I need the gifts that God has given you to help me grow. You need the gifts that God has given me to help you grow. I need to be encouraged and reminded of God's word. And so do you. And this happens with each other. This is God's design. Now let me be clear. What I'm not saying. I'm not saying that to be a Christian means to put your faith in Jesus and go to church. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that if God's design for you to be a Christian is to be part of a church, then if you take the first half of his design to be saved in the Lord Jesus, but discard the second half, then it's pretty hard to be a Christian. <laughs> a member of a certain church who had been previously attending services regularly stopped going out of the blue. He wasn't feeling it anymore, for whatever reason. And after a couple of weeks, his pastor decided to go visit him. And it was a chilly evening. The pastor found the man at his home alone, sitting before a blazing fire. And guessing the reason for the pastor's visit, the man welcomed him in. He led him to a big chair near the fireplace, and he waited. And the pastor made himself comfortable, but said nothing. In the grave silence, he contemplated the play of the flames around the burning logs. 
And after some minutes, the pastor took the tongs next to the fireplace, and he carefully picked up a brightly burning ember, and he placed it to one side of the hearth, all alone. And he sat back in his chair, still silent, and the host watched all of this in quiet fascination. And as the one lone ember's flame diminished, there was a momentary glow, and then its fire was no more. Soon it was cold and as dead as a doornail. Not a word had been spoken since the initial greeting. And just before the pastor was ready to leave, he picked up the cold, dead ember and he placed it back in the middle of the fire and immediately it began to glow once more with the light and the warmth of the burning coals around it. And as the pastor reached for the door to leave, the host said to him the first words of the conversation, thank you so much for your fiery sermon. I shall be back in church next Sunday. It's really hard to be a Christian without a local church. And that's one of the false gospels of our day. And so I have to give you just five. Five false gospels that are pervasive in our culture today. I could give you 15 more. But you get the picture, right? I wonder if you've ever believed in any of those false gospels. Nobody wants to believe the wrong things, but sometimes we do. I wonder if you've been tempted to believe those false gospels. The temptation is easy when the path forward is the easiest. The temptation to please people in our culture is very easy. We see that in verse 10. Paul says, I'm not trying to please people, I'm trying to please God. And in that is the inherent recognition that is when you believe the true gospel, you will not always please people. But you might have to decide who you want to believe and to please. It's serious business to believe the wrong things. The false gospels all lead us to death. So Paul starts out this letter with a stern warning and a robust encouragement. He lays down the gauntlet. He calls those who teach a distorted gospel anathema or accursed. He says it again in verse 10. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you have received, let him be accursed. Accursed, anathema, devoted to destruction. That's how serious false gospels are. Nobody wants to believe the wrong things. So this is both the warning and the exhortation. Make sure you believe the one true gospel. And so what is that one true gospel? How do we know it's true? What does that one true gospel give us? How does this one true gospel relate to the decisions that I make in my life every single day? Well, that is the message of the book of Galatians. <laughs> we'll explore all those wonderful aspects in weeks ahead. But for today... 
we mustn't simply speak of the many false gospels without at least speaking some of the one true gospel. So look with me at the first few verses of the book, verses 1 to 5. Because here we see that the one true gospel delivers us to life. While in verses 6 through 10 we say, while all the false gospels deliver us to death. <laughs> the one true gospel delivers us from something to something. And the false gospels deliver us to death. Look at verse 1. Quickly, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The true gospel comes from God, is given to the apostles, and is passed down to us. From God to the apostles, passed down to us. An apostle is one who was an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord Jesus and received from him what he passed on to many others after him. Now, if the message that you received claiming to be the gospel does not come from God through the apostles, but comes from some inkling of the spirit from somebody, or the words of wisdom of a certain man, or some historical figure, then it is not the true gospel. The true gospel comes from God through the apostles to us. Look at verse 3. Now he gets into the meat of what this gospel is. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the one true gospel. Jesus gave himself up for our sins. The work of Jesus, and Jesus alone, saves. This gospel is an act of God's grace, and his grace alone. And this is why Paul emphasizes this grace when he says, grace to you. And from the very beginning of the book, he starts that tone, and he is going to beat the drum of grace every single day chapter, because it is so hard for us to believe that I don't have to do anything. It's so hard for us to believe that I don't have to earn anything. It's so, it's almost too good to be true that God would just simply give me my most pointed and greatest need for all of eternity. Give it to me for nothing of my own, only because of his grace free gift of his favor to you because he loves you, not because you've earned it. This gospel is a gospel in which Christ's work delivers us from the present evil age, it says in verse 4. It doesn't keep you in the status quo. He saves you through this gospel, and he gives you life, and he gives you freedom. This gospel, it says, is a gospel that gives us peace, grace and peace from God. And this gospel is a gospel in which God and God alone will receive the glory for it. Nothing that we can do, no glory we deserve, God does the work, you get the benefit. God gets 
the glory. The one true gospel, salvation by God's grace through faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Salvation by the grace of God through faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins delivers us to life while all false gospels deliver us to death. And so in the short introduction to the book, you see these many aspects and facets of the true gospel. And when you take some of it out, when you subtract, it becomes a false gospel. And when you add, it becomes a false gospel. But here, right in the beginning, we see the foundations of what we would call the Protestant Reformation. This comes from the word of the apostles, sola scriptura. It's by grace alone, sola gratia. It's by Christ alone, sola Christus. It's to the glory of God alone, sola de gloria. And the message of the rest of the book is going to be that it's by faith alone. Sola fide. The one true gospel. Salvation by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Those are words to live by. And I hope they are your words to live by. I hope that you can more clearly identify all of the false gospels around us and hone in on the true gospel that gives you life, that gives you hope, that gives you encouragement, that shows God's love to you day in and day out as he continues to give it to you. We celebrate that gospel every Sunday when we gather together. We need to hear it, remind ourselves of it every day we go through this journey because in it, God works. People are saved and he receives glory. So let's pray and thank him that he has such a clear encouragement and warning for us. Lord God in heaven, help us to more clearly see false gospels, to more readily defend and engage and embrace the one true gospel. We recognize and we thank you for your grace that we don't deserve, for your love that is unending, for the sacrifice of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, and for the forgiveness that you offer. It's in his mighty name that we pray. Amen.